Hey, Mac, when does deer season start? Well, if you want the best deer herd possible, Lanny, you need to start right now. Right now. That's, That's why right. we're starting our promotion. I mean, we've got a deer season starts now promotion on plantbiologic.com where you can pick up our Game Changer soybeans, our forage soybeans, and our spring protein peas. While you're there, you might as well go ahead and pick up some brassicas like our final forage and winter bowls. Yeah, stock up for the cool season planting right now. Listeners to the GK Podcast, if you use coupon code GKPOD, you can save an additional 10% off our entire selection of warm season, cool season, and clover food plot seed. Get started today and visit plantbiologic.com for an unforgettable fall. Hi, I'm Jeff Foxworthy, and welcome to Gamekeeper Podcast. If you want to learn more about farming for wildlife and habitat management, then buddy, you are in the right place. Join the Gamekeeper crew direct from Mossy Oak Land Enhancement Studio as they discuss the latest wildlife and habitat management practices, news, and of course, hunting. There's no telling what you'll learn, but I'm going to tell you, I bet it's interesting. Enjoy. In three, two, one, we're live without Mac Mac. Uh, All right. Well, here we go. We got a good one today, guys. We do. This is this we is do? this is dead center of our bullseye. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and everybody looks good. Dudley, you look relaxed. Lanny, you look like you got a twinkle in your eye. Always. <laughs> and then sitting over in the guest chair is the one and only Dr. Bronson Strickland. Boom again. He's our most featured guest. He really is. And how he finds his way over here so much is... Uh, <laughs> I thought you were going to say, compliment me about how good I looked, too, and say something about a haircut. Yeah, uh, well, but, it is uh, shiny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I try. What kind I'll of try. products do you use, Bronson? I, I've signed some non-disclosure agreements with mm, this, yeah, this cutting-edge okay. new... Well, Bobby's kind of glowing red over there. He's got a new, we got a new office fixture. Yeah, we do. Right we, behind me. It's all me. about living your best life. Does it say live? It says live. Oh, live. Oh, yeah. I thought, I thought coming at you live. Okay. Coming at you live. Oh, yeah, okay. we're coming at you live. And so, Bronson, rumor has it you killed a bunch of pigs and deer this past week. Had a wonderful uh, week last week, and I was in South Mississippi and uh, roads around up? here. It was the rut. Oh, nice. What was going on. And so, got to see a whole bunch of those cool behaviors that a dork like me like likes to see and scrape scraping and, and all that sort of stuff and and then was lucky for some an arrow and a couple bullets found their way. All and, right. And so the freezer is stocked for 2022. Man, you must have laid them down. Yeah, it was a like trip. It. So when you go to a property to hunt, do uh do you get as a biologist, do you get asked a lot of just questions? It, I bet. It 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 all Generally, yeah, but it'll depend Don't say on... it depends. That's what every <laughs> one of these guys, it, it depends. <laughs> well, it, it depends. I mean, that's like, <laughs> that's like um, inviting a football quarterback to, to the hunting camp and not asking him about football. You know, they're going to ask Bronson about deer stuff. I hope so. A, a few questions come up, Bobby, time and time again, yeah. Well, it would be interesting to have him in camp because I bet, you, you know— you're skinning a duck, and you have those things called what? Deadly? What'd you call them the other day? Worms. I, you, I yeah. call them worms. Rice breast. Rice breast. <laughs> you know, you could ask if you ask uh, Bronson, "Hey, what is this?" And he would say, "It depends. <laughs> <laughs> it's some kind of parasite, but it depends on the species." Lanny, yeah. do you eat those duck breasts? Uh, I'm not. I'm not a fan of worms. I mean, I don't mind them like in speckled trout and redfish, but it kind of weirds me out in a duck. Does I don't. I don't know why there's a difference. I don't want to. I don't. I, don't, I haven't ran into that many of them. I mean, a handful. 
I mean, I've, so I've seen them in shovelers, but I, I don't normally. Yeah, I normally see. I don't normally shoot at shovelers all the time. So shovelers are pretty tasty. I hate the fire yeah. out of them. Well, this was in a mallard. Mm. Yeah, it, it depends they, with me. Of are you are you going to cook it rare, medium rare, or well done? Like in fish, Dudley, you were saying, if you're going right. to cut you're it off and deep fry, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Eat on. yeah. I'm a I'm a rare to medium rare on the duck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you are. So, uh, you know, let's keep this thing moving. Uh, blood on the biologic. Have you guys got anything to add to what uh, what may have happened this week? We got Bronson on the board. Bronson's on the board. Um, I know of some young hunters, some of my local buddies and such. And uh, if people want to submit photos of their kids Please with their first, we would love it. But uh, love to see that morning. John Hart Walker. Uh, most recently got his first deer, which was a doe, and then a few days later he got his first buck. He's had a jam up uh, season there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, one of my Greenwood buddies. Um, and then my neighbor, Harlan Taggart, uh, not his first deer, but he got his biggest deer, which is a big old 10-point. Hey, that's uh, awesome. I'm hoping to stop by there and hear the whole story soon, maybe, uh, maybe at soccer practice. Soon. You know, there's an art to tell those stories. It's fun, funny seeing the young ones tell their Oh, yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I yeah. can't wait to hear it. And uh, J.T. Moselle, uh, little bitty guy, got his first doe. Nice. And got scoped. Uh, got which ring. A lot of first deers, you get scoped, and he had a big old smile on his face it, like it didn't even happen. Oh, so. Big Dave says it just hurts for a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Only when I breathe. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he was just eating it up. That, that smile on his face said it all. Well, we're kind of getting prepared for a little blood on the biologic this season. We're going to have the old youth uh, final weekend doe pig shoot. So hopefully I have some some stuff to report this after this weekend. Well, I walked by here a couple of days ago, and, and Hayden was in here studying these deer yet. Oh, he's eating up. Uh, you know, Bronson, when you talk about, you know uh, – a wildlife nerd. We're all wildlife nerds and love to watch that behavior. He got like some National Geographic exposure this year. Even maybe a little bit of, uh, uh, you know, he got some pretty up close and personal uh, rutting activity, <laughs> yeah, to say the least. Oh, yeah. Well, that's exciting. Lots of questions. Lots of questions. It's amazing what they learn. Uh, in the woods with you. So. Well, he's interested in antlers. I saw him oh, studying yeah. every deer in yeah. here. Was he that big? Yeah. Was he that big? Yeah. What do you think? Well, he's, Hercules is a good barometer he, for him to what, go by. What he wants is to take Hercules off the wall and put his deer up. I promise you that's what it's all about. Yeah, okay. Well, <laughs> yeah, it's tough in at the top. You but. know, it's tough. Yeah, maybe he'll get specially called into Iowa for a, when they don't have a great white hunter up there good enough to take one. He might be. <laughs> that's, what, that's what it'll take. <laughs> that's for sure. So, And I wanted to mention a young man from Montgomery named Jay Mitchell Dozier. Killed his first deer. Nice. Really cute young kid. Killed his first deer there. And I, look, Richie, um, you're, you had a child. I think your daughter killed her first deer, and you didn't even tell us about Richie. it. Richie! What? Richie! Yeah, it's true. So What? Both my girls shot their first deer this year. So I, you know, I have a 12 year old and an eight year old, and they both shot their first deer. My uh, youngest, eight year old, there, she shot, you know, she shot a little five point. Nice. And so she was ecstatic. Uh, we actually, my wife, cooked them up last night, and you know, she the loved provider. It. Yeah. So they all got a kick out of it. But see, so my oldest, she's 12, and she shot a doe. And so now she's trying to oh, outdo no, little yeah, sister. Now. The, yeah. And so now it's kind of getting that. Uh, she's really bit up by it, and she, like again, this last weekend here, she wants to go hard. Yeah, and, good for uh, her. So, but though they're excited, and it, it's been fun this whole season, just uh, trying to get them on the board. Well, we're gonna have to write Richie up for not letting us yeah, know about the blood on the biologic. Would I mean, you please give them a shout out with their names? 
Yeah. So that's <laughs> yeah, I guess so. <laughs> yeah, that'd be good. So yeah, Eva, my oldest, she's twelve, and uh, Charlie Beth, she's our eight year old. So putting meat in the freezer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, How about it. that? We love the kids. Oh, that's the best thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's Bro- the phase we're in. I mean, Bobby, you're still in that phase. You just have a twenty five year old child. No, no yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and she's into. She hadn't met a deer she doesn't want to shoot yet. Yeah, so. <laughs> that's good. Well, look, guys, we're going to talk about brassicas today, mm-hmm. and, and biologic. We've been messing around with brassicas. Hey, it was for the anchor. You know, it was our our anchor it was our first blend i mean it really was so yeah so before we do that i'd like richie we missed it last week and i've I got called on the carpet but what about uh and we got a commercial a sponsor we need to mention real quick well yeah being that we're talking about brassicas this week uh really want to hit on a, a strong partner with us ferminator right. and just the versatility uh, of what their units can do and we actually went and uh toured the facility uh, and just went through the whole process of how they put those together. And it, I mean, it's amazing on what they do. They're built like a tank. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they are. Yeah. Stuff. So you got to see them build one from scratch. Yeah, yeah, from, yeah, just straight sheet metal to the final, final production. So just, uh, it was, uh, I it, it, was, it was a hot field trip. Yeah, I don't know. Richie? Yeah, well, yeah, I he's mean, he's get written up twice this week. <laughs> and I think he went during turkey season, if I'm not yeah, mistaken. Yeah, it was, yeah. What? Yeah. Um, we, yeah, well, that, it, that explains why I was preoccupied. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> we 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 did chase some turkeys, but uh, it was fun. We did nothing on the board though. But uh, that's because you didn't take me. Uh, I imagine not. <laughs> well, they make a great product, and they're great people, and it makes a great seed bed and and plants it and covers it. Yeah, it does. You know? It's it's really good for brassicas. Uh, yeah, that that whole machine is well, just great. So yeah. so check out Furminator dot com if I'm not mistaken. You're correct. Yeah, Furminator dot com and like. Uh, uh, Dudley was saying there with the Furminator, you can you know set that seed depth, and with the brassicas, it's just you can just run with it. Yeah, clover, brassicas, blends, Great all kinds tool. of good stuff. Yeah, Quality I, I like. Them. I wish I had one myself. You need a tractor. First. I need a tractor. Yes. <laughs> 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 all right, so. Bronson, we're glad you're here because what we want to talk about at Braskas, and we don't want this to turn into a commercial because mm-hmm. you know how much we, I mean, everybody know, with Biologic, it's a big part. Either we, you know, we've got Maximum, which is 100% a Braskas. Braskas isn't it? it is. And then we've got Winter Bulbs and Sugar Beets, and we've got Radishes. And, and then with all of our other blends like Green Patch Plus, Outfits, there's there. a sprinkling of Braskas in there. So we're big fans. Mm-hmm. So we brought you in because, uh, you know, you've done a lot of research from Mississippi State on food plots and different Is there independent cultivars. Research? He's the non-biased. Yeah. The non-biased. So that's, that's what you are. I so, think he likes this a little bit. Yeah, well, <laughs> if we even just hint there's going to be a podcast, <laughs> he shows up. I'll be there. <laughs> so, Bronson, let's just start off. Okay. Um, when you think about brassicas, what kind of comes to you in your mind? I think of uh, a lot of biomass production. That, that's number one. Uh, I, I also think of that brassicas are a part of a food plot system that's really important because if you've ever read any of our stuff or heard us talk about, what, what we always promote is diversity. Mm-hmm. And that's diversity within your plantings, that's diversity within your habitat and so forth. So forth. So uh, brassicas gives you just another option within your food plot system so you can let deer decide what they want. They're obviously, if you've done it long enough, you have been to places where the deer are choosing to, to eat brassicas. So we have always had uh, great success with them. 
We've also, a topic that, that comes up a lot is some people will not have a good experience with them the first time they plant it. Mm-hmm. But then when it rolls back around year two or year three or after that you find out that now that the deer are familiar with a novel plant, you know, this isn't a natural plant, it's a novel, novel it's new to their environment, they have to get used to it. And once they develop a taste for it and so forth, they start consuming it. So we think it is really the the way I, and probably oversimplifying here a bit, but I tend to think of the progression of the cool season or dormant season where cereal grains play that's oats wheat rye not rye grass plays a very important role because it's the first to jump up i think that that's like your bow hunter especially you know and and then we start getting into cooler weather and that is where brassicas can really play a role and clover start coming into their own at that time too when spring rolls around though that is when clovers take over so it's that mix of those plants to provide diversity throughout that cool season through the food plot season in the spring and so i think brassicas just fit in great with that mm. Yeah, the whole diversity thing is really good. So, Lanny, you raising your hand? I mean, this is I'm, this is this might be Dudley, this this might be Doc over there, either one. But you know, the term brassicas just help people understand what that refers to. Is it a specific uh, genus of plants? Brassica is a genus. Brassicaceae is a family. Okay. So, uh, is it the, is it the family? I mean, what what else are in the family? Um, things like. You know, kale, rape, cabbage, Bro- broccoli, must- mustards, broccoli, broccoli yeah. is a brassica. I, I think yeah. so. Huh? Well, no wonder I love. Brassica. Well, and broccoli is a lot of times. If you don't use like a like our soil test service or or Mississippi State, if you were say you were in Maryland and you used a, a local one up there, you would need to tell them broccoli would be a, a, a if you were planting maximum. Yeah, you would compare it you, to broccoli. You, they would get. They might say, "What is a brassica?" And you say, "Well, I'm planting broccoli." Oh, okay. And they and they would give you a recommendation. So for, it refers to the genus of of a, a real leafy, I guess, plant with a right. stalk or stem, because it seems most like most of them have stems and stalks. Yeah. So um, and tap roots. And tap so roots. your turnips yeah. and so forth, radishes. Right. Yeah. yeah uh, like, so we're talking about a really a broad. We're not not one specific plant, but a genus of plants. We usually refer to the genus or even the family when we say the word brassica because, uh, for example, radish is not in the genus brassica. It's in the genus raffinus. What is it, a brassica? Raffinus sativus. Oh, is, I knew that. Is radish. That's what I was and so, but it's in the brassicaceae family, so we refer to that. Oh, so, so you uh, got a family and a genus. Yeah. So, so genus, family, species. Yeah. So like kale and collards. I'll listen a little bit. <laughs> yeah, kale, collards, broccoli, cabbage, cauliflower is Brassica oleracea. Uh, rape and rutabagas is Brassica napus. Uh, turnips are Brassica rapa. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Mr. Know-it-all. <laughs> and, uh, by the way, I, I'm not just reciting this. I wrote this down. Yeah. Now, if that was trees, he'd be reciting. Yeah, yeah that's exactly yeah. right. So, you know, w- when we started this company many years ago, Bronson, there's a there's a seed company out of New Zealand called Wrightson Nutrition. 
And at that time, they were a hundred years old. This mm-hmm. is twenty five years ago, and. They the the island of New Zealand is a real interesting place. It goes from sea level to snow capped mountains in about seventy miles, and they have smaller paddocks, is what they refer to. Yeah, them. it's and undulated they, too. For, I mean, for, it's mountainous. Yeah, yeah. So uh, they they've been work they it, they have been working to develop hybridized plants that perform for that the the, the down in that part of the world deer farming is number that was the number two, industry. number two industry so tourism being number one deer farm number two so the new zealand deer farmer has the same needs wants and desires as a as a deer as an american deer hunter they want to grow a big heavy deer and they actually and they <laughs> sell those velvet antlers mm-hmm. to the Asians for aphrodisiacs. And Dudley, you've got a bunch of that stuff. Yeah, yeah. Keeps, that. Them, keeps them in the cabinet. So, so <laughs> um, they had hybridized and, and Brett, but at that time, and this has been about 25, 20 something years ago, they were explaining how they might have started off with twelve hundred different plants Selections. and selected down to about twenty five, and then those twenty five they selected down to. 15, to get those best characteristics that they wanted. And that's what we started importing over here. And, mm-hmm. and you know, the, it's, it was Late just 90s. some really high-end scientific stuff of what they were doing. And just to add on, I mean, what you were talking about, the plots of land that they have to grow these red deer on, which are, are physically bigger than our whitetails anyways, they had to have a forage that would produce the maximum amount of highly nutritious forage possible in a small place. So I just think that's a little, little caveat. Not to get off on the, yes. the biologic story, but that's why it was so attractive to us in the early days. Yes, because they, they don't have vast amounts of land. No, like they've got small they, plots. Yeah, yes. Yeah. So, and, and, uh, and they're very focused on what they do. They are fantastic forage farmers down there. If you ever read or take it or Google and look down there, it's mm-hmm. just, uh, those paddocks are incredible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we learned a lot early on about this. And through those 25 years, we've tweaked our varieties that we use. They have brought more to the table for us that are improved. We've started adding some of those things. And it's just incredible. But the one thing that we've learned, and a good time to point this out, it just kind of struck me. One thing we learned, we're planting too, we're, we're planting too many we're of them per acre. They're too powerful yeah. to plant. Yes. Yeah. We, we see them do better when they're planted at about half the rate that we're recommending. And we're working on changing our recommendation and, and packaging. Uh, you know, we've got to. But, Lanny, I, 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 through the years, the, I, I have had some failures because I planted them too heavy myself. All of us have, you know, as food plotters, too. You know, you got a bag of seed, and you're like, well, I know it's not, it's a little bit small now, but you're still going to spread it. So <laughs> uh, we really need to follow those planting rates, really do. I was going to ask, you know, Bronson, with your experience of all the forages that you've dealt with and studied over the years, is there anything or any genus or any family of plants that produces as, as much tonnage as, as these plant, as much tonnage of forage. I, I think, you know, early on when I was learning about brassicas, that was the main differentiator for me yeah. between it and everything else. I, I may be wrong. I can't think of anything off the top of my head of a, a dormant season yeah. or a cool season plant. Warm season, yeah. Sure. Soybean mm-hmm. would be a great example. But I can't think of anything for a cool season planting, no. Yeah. So, Hey, guys. I made a mistake. I was supposed to get Austin to be on here with us. Oh, yeah, the the Brassica guy. Yeah, Yeah. our uh, our lead researcher. So uh, Dudley is getting him on the phone now. Uh, uh, Not Dudley, but Richie's getting him on the phone now while we're sitting here. There you go. (laughs) For whatever reason, they go to it more and more the colder it gets, which I think is just 
doesn't have much to do with the fact that it's getting sweeter or not. But well, it's uh, also those just, whitetails' needs as it gets colder; they need more carbohydrates. Right, and, and the we, the weeds and plants in the woods are diminishing. Right, and so they're naturally yeah. going to go more to brassica crops. I, I don't think it. Dudley, sometimes I wonder. I'm I'm thinking that as well. Is I think a lot of it might be temperature driven not so much because it might be changing the chemical composition of the plant, but the growth habits of the plant in terms of what grows better when it gets really cold. Hmm. Because we know that when a plant stops growing, the quality is diminished and an actively growing plant has less fiber and greater protein content typically. And so sometimes I wonder when that cold snap happens, it's not so much that it's becoming higher carbohydrates or sweeter, so to speak. It might just be that that species is actively growing uh, right. in December. More cold tolerance. Right. So it yeah. tastes better to them. <laughs> okay, guys, we, we, we started down the road, and then I also I forgot to call you. I'm sorry. That's, it's my bad. Uh, that, but that shows you how he feels about you. It's the lips. I'm beginning to see that. Yeah. <laughs> so we've got Austin Delano on the phone, and Austin uh, work. There you go. Do that. Thank you there, Rich. So (laughs) Austin does a lot of research for us. So we couldn't have this conversation without him being on here. Uh, But thankfully, we finally got you on here, Austin. So, okay. So, Bobby, uh, something I want you to clarify, please. When you talked about the the planting rate may have been too much in the past, were you referring to just a monoculture of brassicas or brassicas within a mix of clover, cereal grains, etc.? Yeah. So specifically, I was talking about a monoculture. Like our our product maximum, it, we it have historically recommended nine pounds an acre, and we I think if you went out to do it today, five pounds would be plenty. Yeah, they're mm-hmm. such powerful plants. Yeah, uh, is the best way. To if put you it. plant them on time, right, right. And I think what is it, Austin? Um, Sixty days before the frost. I you know I really suggest sixty. I mean it it really depends on too. I think where you live at because. Let's just take this year, for example, in the south, our growing season this year almost didn't stop until like two weeks ago mm-hmm. because we never got those really like shut down 15 degree nights that, you know, really start telling the plant that it's done. And if you would have lived in northern Iowa, that 60 days would have been really important, um, more so than in the south where our growing season was just a little bit longer this year, but you can't wait too late in the South because the, the photo period gets shorter. The soil temperature does go down. And so that window of when things are trending for the plant rather than against it does start to get shorter. So I do love to see at least 60 days. Some people will try to get, you know, 70 and 80, but there is a point of diminishing return on having too much growth or planting them too early and and then becoming less palatable because the the plant is over mature and it's not in its most palatable stage of growth. You, you know, it, it is. Bronson uh, kind of hit on it earlier about uh, sometimes people in new uh, areas, but might, maybe the first time they planted brassicas, they might not see that utilization early. And you know, you know, and I can remember when we started the company, a lot of biologists said, "Well, you know, you, if you take corn to South Florida or you take apples to Texas, the deer don't know what it is. They've got to learn what it is." But almost always by January, February, we started seeing those guys that called early and said, "Hey, you know, my deer aren't eating it. What's going on?" By 
January, February, those same guys were calling back and saying, man, they found it, and they are wearing it out now. That's and one it, of the coolest things about them is the late-season attraction that they provide. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. And that's why this is the perfect time of year to be talking about, about this. Right. It, it, uh, my farm in central Mississippi, it, it took three years for them to figure it out. Uh, but, you know, some, some folks may plant it, and unknowingly their neighbor's already been planting it, and they just go right to it the first year. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Also of note is this year was somewhat of an exception for, in, in my mind, for folks planting it uh, the first time because uh, in, in so many parts of the country, it was warmer. For uh, You know, Austin was just hitting on that. It stayed warm for so long. And uh, a lot of areas, you know, radish, you know, deer just love it. Uh, you almost have to put something up to keep them out of it. Mm-hmm. But it took them a lot longer this year at my place to start utilizing those brassica fields. And uh, I just relate that to the fact that it stayed so warm and there was a lot of food resources uh, in the in the cover, in the mm-hmm. woods, that normally, uh, you know, these earlier frosts would have gotten rid of. You know, you, when you mentioned radishes there, I, I don't know that there's anything more attractive in, in the early season than those radishes. They're just incredible. Especially out of the brassicas. Yeah, we had uh, – Mark Drew was supposed to be on with us, and he, he couldn't but be, be here. But, I, I, you know, I don't want to speak for him, but he would – I think he would say that, that they the radishes may be the most attractive thing he's ever planted. Well, I can tell you we've heard those comments from him, part of the Midwest, all the way up north, all the way down in the south, too. Everybody loves those deer radishes. Mm-hmm. I, I would add one thing about the, the story that people have about getting a year or two or three experiences. And if you only plant cool season plots, you're not familiar with this, but when you start getting planting warm season is cowpeas. Sure. Mm-hmm. And so the whole strategy of, of cowpeas is that I planted soybeans and I've got too many deer or the plot's not big enough. And the deer wiped it out. So you get to step it down to a cowpea. And the whole logic behind that is the cowpea is not as palatable initially until it flowers, and then, it, and then the, the deer will wipe it out. But then in year two, after the deer became familiar with it, year two, you can't get it, you know, an ankle high off the ground, and the deer out. hit it. Yeah. Same kind of phenomenon is that an animal needs some experience with a new forage. Yeah, that's really interesting how that works. Because right here, it's a learning curve. I mean, when we, when we here in Clay County, when we plant brassicas, they they, they, they just smashed. they start eating them just as soon as they come mm-hmm. up. Yeah, it's, it's a struggle for us to get them established, I and mean, we often have to fence them off early in the season. Sometimes uh, to get the root system established. You know, we're in a Blackland Prairie, and uh, I'd love to hear some response from this from some of our more uh, well studied listeners. But uh, you know, we have really high organic matter soils around here. Um, and I have a little theory that that may actually make a lot of these food plot species taste better, hmm. um, just with that high organic matter content. Well, if you look at a plant as a nutrient transfer agent, that would make sense, especially for a deer because it's looking for the nutrients it needs. Yeah, they, Bronson, let's, let's kind of go down this a little bit. They are s- selected browsers. They, right. they don't spend the whole evening in one spot. That's exactly right. And, and by that's how God designed them. Our, our nerdy term is a concentrate selector. The the other end of that continuum would be a cow or a bison. We would just call a grazer. And so literally everything about their body is different from how big their salivary glands are to the ratio of rumen to body size. So a cow is going to have this enormous stomach or rumen, four-chambered stomach, because all they eat, or most of it, is grass. 
lower uh, nutrition content, higher fiber. They need a bigger room and longer retention time to work it through to get nutrients, to extract nutrients out of it. Deer, smaller, not only is their body smaller, their rumen relatively is smaller. And it's because they concentrate and they select on particular plants and parts of plants that are very nutritious. So they also have a very diverse diet. And so they are built to eat a whole bunch of different plants. And if you watch a deer, even though there, there might be this food planting that is just perfect, you know, something like alfalfa, a deer is usually not going to do an entire feeding bout on that one forage. It's going to balance it then with some naturally, occurred, uh, naturally occurring forages because it needs to mix those different forages to, to meet its nutrient demands. We, we call it, it's, it's a nutrition, it's a, it's a feedback system that goes on with us. And the way I, I try to explain it is something really obvious with humans, but you know when you need salt. Mm-hmm. You've got a craving for a salty food. You also know when you've had too much salt. You shy away from that, from that type of stuff. That is essentially going on with every feeding bout, you know, two to four times a day for a deer. They know what they need. They know they need energy. They know they need acorns and mast and things like that. So is it safe to say they need high protein? And they select those forages in the wild. They they would not just eat one forage. No, absolutely not. So that that mother doe, her body's telling her what she needs to help with that fawn. Absolutely. That Mm -hmm. is just a. It's 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 really impressive. That's one of the most impressive things about the species to me. Yeah. It, re- it really is though when you when you think about nature's telling it, it to get a little bit it, of this and a little bit of that. I mean, as humans, like we rely on software and all these diet programs to tell you what you need. They know. You know yeah, I, I've heard it explained also. Like a deer's got a narrow nose and a, a narrower tongue, and it can select out what it needs as opposed to a cow, which has a big wide face and big wide tongue and just grabs a whole bunch. And, and all a lot, the, on that note, a lot of the traditional food plot plantings have been engineered for cows. Is this is this a correct statement? I think that's I think back in the day that they were borrowing uh, forages from the cattle industry to plant for deer, which right. That, and that's and how you it just started. said completely biological would be yeah. a good example. Yeah, yeah. And um, they're obviously not the same biologically. So, and if you want a good example of the the uh, the facial characteristic, the dimensions of the head is if you ever watch a deer foraging in South Texas working through that brush and cactus and how they're able to navigate that black brush and mesquite. um, Very, very different than than the way a cow, of course, would approach that. So they can, because they're adapted to it. They evolved with those forages. Yeah. And and not to beat a dead horse, but (laughs) the, uh, you know, it's always been apparent to me that they're that way. Just, you know, watching them, even with corn feeders, they're going to come in, eat a little bit of corn, and leave. You know, they're not going to sit there and stuff their guts on it where a cow would walk in there. Eat it all. And smash it all. Yeah. <laughs> That's exactly right. Yeah, um, so, again, very biologically different. Needs are different and everything else, which just uh, kind of adds to this conversation about why brassicas. Hey, this is Dudley from Native Nurseries. I spend a lot of time deep in the woods looking for special trees. Onyx keeps me on track and helps me be sure I can find them again and my way out. Try it out for yourself and see. Use coupon code MOSSYOAK to save 20% on your Onyx subscriptions. Something else interesting about brassicas and, and a lot of other these 
these food plot species we plant is uh, their importance to soil health. Mm-hmm. Um, I bet Austin would like to hit on some of the uh, positives of, of growing brassicas. Since we were talking about radishes, is the power that they have in growing that tuber um, and the, the nutrients that it's able to kind of mine and gather from around that tuber and bring up into the plant. Even if, let's say, your deer don't completely eat every tuber in the field and that tuber is left to rot, those nutrients are should be a lot more readily available to the next crop, whether it be, you know, a, a warm season legume, beans and peas, that's going to be a lot more shallow rooted in a, in a shorter growing season. So there's one reason in soil health right there. But if you've ever taken, let's say you planted Nebraska here in the South, you know, sometime in late August, that's when I try to get mine in up here because I, I'm probably going to get a frost, a hard frost, a solid three weeks before y'all would, even though we're just a couple hours away. But if I get my radishes put in, towards the end of august and we have a really good growing season plenty of rain i've dug up some of the tap roots like taking a backhoe so that you don't so that you can actually dig through some of our churdy soil and the the actual tap root on the bottom of that tuber you know gets down to 18 and sometimes 20 inches below where you would normally pick it up and it would break off yeah so, i was reading about that earlier and uh some folks have dug, you know, it's like a little string at this point, but uh, they can go as deep as six feet. And, and that yeah, it's also, pretty amazing. Yeah, sorry. Go ahead. So that that shows how they can get, you know, so say somebody planted corn uh, the season before and put out a bunch of nitrogen. Well, nitrogen moves through the soil very quickly and can get too deep for for a crop. But that's the beauty of brassicas, uh, you know, radish being one of the main ones. It sends down that taproot that almost turns into a little string. And it's able to pull uh, nitrogen out of the soil and bring it to the top. And then when it dies, it leaves it near the surface. So would that be a tuber on the... It's actually a taproot. A taproot. And, and we just call them tubers just out of So you got that big taproot going on. Then you got all these almost microscopic hairs that run down and around all of that tuber. And you've explained this to me, Doug. Yeah. That's why I'm kind of restating it. So like what Austin's saying, it's bringing that nitrogen up in that living matter. And then when it dies, it makes it shallower and more available for other plants. But doesn't it also create air cavities in there which aerates the soil too and makes it better? Yeah, I mean, when it when it dies, that little, well, the, the, the top portion, which gets bigger, you know, helps push the soil to the side and it's almost like a like tillage mm-hmm. right next to the root but then the deeper you go when that dies back uh, not only is that root leaving nutrients on the surface it's creating a little hole so it's improving drainage mm-hmm. um, I've got a field that some loggers kind of messed up pushing the topsoil off to the sides and it, it became a concave and was holding water and uh, I've been growing brassicas in it and doing my poor man's no-till on it for seven years, and it doesn't hold water anymore when it rains. It's got that much matter in it now. It infiltrates down. So instead of when it rains, the water trying to stay on the surface or wash away, it actually goes down into the the subsoil, which is a good thing. I think this is one reason that that radishes have been 
so popular in the last eight to 10 years in the regenerative farming uh, cover crop, you know, push that we've really been seeing is obviously they are somewhat inexpensive compared to some other brassica varieties um, for what you get out of them. But the immediate return that a row crop farmer can seize on fields that he's been, you know, farming for, for decades sometimes when he can see immediate, just what you're hitting on Dudley, immediate difference in the way water penetrates through the soil profile is, is very evident to somebody that's been working the same piece of ground for a long time. And so if they have enough of the radishes planted in the cover crop to create these voids through the soil profile, once that radish root is, uh, is rotten and you've got these voids in the soil that water can once again move through the profile of the soil in a more natural way rather than that very compacted um, layer that we see so many times in, you know, a hard pan as it's often referred to, uh, it, it's pretty immediately evident um, when you can start seeing the, the nutrient levels per a soil test be higher immediately after a crop of that has um, rotted on the ground and, and you take soil samples. It's pretty uh, evident to the people that are really paying attention to the to the health of the soil, not just in numbers, but also the way what happens to it three days after rain because they've been working that soil for so many years. Right. And, uh, you know, they're known for uh, suppressing nematodes. Uh, there, you know, there's different species that have better traits than others. I think uh, some of the mustards and turnips are better at suppressing nematodes. Uh, they have weed control activity. Uh, I hope I'm pronouncing this right, but glucosinolates is like a natural weed inhibitor hmm. that uh, it's like a root exudate that uh, just helps suppress weeds. And so, you know, a lot of these organic farmers and no-till farmers like that. Uh, and then, you know, a lot of fo- farmers are doing these cover crops where they're mixing up cereal grain, uh, probably a clover and some brassicas to get uh, the benefits of all of them. And uh, it works really well. But, you know, that's what we've been doing for a long time with our food plots anyway. Yeah. Pretty interesting. So I think it's important to point out that we kind of purposely did this show here the latter part of January. And I suspect that a lot of people's food plots are like lip high. They're just mowed down, eaten down. But as a gamekeeper, that's not where you want it to be this time of year. You want to still have some groceries out there available because, like, if you look at the weather for the next four or five days, Bronson, I know you have. Mm -hmm. It's going to be really cold here in Mississippi and Alabama for, I mean, in the 20s for five more consecutive nights. And, uh, boy, those deer, everything in the woods is kind of playing out. So had a guy had some brassicas and managed that field and had some left still standing, I mean, mm-hmm. that's, that's those are groceries in the refrigerator, so to speak. And, and you got to go to not, not just the next week. We have to go until spring green up. That's right. You know, so we've got all of February and sometimes half of March we've got to, to think about as well. And when mast has been consumed um, and then you don't have and you haven't managed your habitat and you don't have a lot of food plot forage, Deer have evolved to live through that type of lack of forage. So think about before we were ever here, 
you know, planting anything, there wasn't a lot on the landscape in February for a deer. So sure. they they a- actually will lower uh, the, the number of foraging bouts, uh, even voluntary intake. If you had them in a pen with, with food right beside them, they just don't eat as much that time of year. But um, if you're interested in, in antlers and body size and, and maximizing fawning rate, set up a system to where they go into spring green up, not having to make up such a deficit. So right. don't go in 20 pounds underweight when you can go in five pounds underweight or, you know, just for example. Yeah, and that, then you, you started a, a higher spot. That, and the rut is so stressful. Right. And, and, you know, when, then this part of the world, our rut's going on right when all this, uh, when, when the mast is really beginning to – It'd be hard for harder mm-hmm. for them to find, right? Um, so I, I think it's more it, it's it's super important that guys think about this and trying to have diversity on their food plots. If I'm not mistaken, now that so, uh, one of these brassica plots, if they're done right, where you're talking about eight and ten tons of forage per acre, yeah, mm-hmm. now, eight to ten tons of forage per acre. At Bronson, what would wheat for uh, like a forage wheat per acre? What would that? I believe. Uh, I think it's rare to get above five thousand pounds. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think three to four thousand would be. Don't quote me. I'm going yeah. from memory yeah. here, but so I, a couple of tons. A couple of tons. And, and yeah. So we're talking about doubling that. Right. And I mean, if you're and the a, amount of forage, and I'm not. I'm, yeah. As we say this, I'm not knocking cereal grains. I no. think they're no, we, very. We yeah. I don't think Needle. anything is a, a silver bullet. You know. Uh, yeah. Well, it just goes back to what Bronson was saying about diversity, having a little bit of everything Correct. on there. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, I just wanted to point out, it, it, I can remember when we started the companies, they, I, I went to a hunter's night out, and the guy who was wearing overalls, I'll never forget it, he put his thumbs in his overalls. Oh, and, of course. And, and he said, I plant that stuff right there. My deer eat it to the ground. And there's by the end of hunting season, there's nothing left. And I thought to myself, that that's not what we that's not what we want. Right. Well, really, this time of year, too, is when they need it most. That's right. Yeah. Um, you know, if you're up north, one of the beauties is is that snow can fall on it and, and somewhat insulate the crop. Um, you know, uh, you start getting below 15 Fahrenheit at night, several nights in a row. Your radishes can start breaking down. Uh, things like turnip and rape can handle colder nights. So some of the middle states... And uh, somebody correct me if I'm wrong, but they may lose out a little bit in some of that late uh, midwinter where you can get some uh, kill on that. But uh, the bulbs stick around. But if you get a little bit further north where it seems to get under a blanket of st- snow and stay most of the winter, I mean, that's that's a gold mine right there. So it's, it's like getting put in the fridge for free, and then the deer can paw it up and eat on it as they need it. Yeah, you know Todd Amonrud, who lives in uh, in Minnesota, he talks about those deer just pawing through, and the, and those tubers in that part of the world, he he grows them. They're about the size of softballs, right? Um, and then you know some of my plots, if uh, I refer to it as, have petered out a little bit by now, uh, but there's still some green growth on top, and the turnips are still. Uh, they seem to have a little bit less water content, so they last longer in the soil. The radishes are starting to degrade a little bit more now, and they're they're chomping on a lot of the uh, the turnip tap roots, and uh, everything else is starting to decompose. But Bobby over here, 
he played his cards right this year and uh, had some fancy soil test work done and put like a micronutrient package out, whole nine yards. His stuff looks as good as mine did in October, and it's wow. almost February. Yeah, it I mean, really it's does. still nice and green. Uh, no degradation look to it at all. Deer in it every afternoon. So, uh, yeah. One of the yeah. points. It's, it's been yeah, incredible. I've, I've learned a lot. And uh, it just goes to show if, if you try to cut corners, especially with very hungry crops like corn or brassicas, um, it's, it's, I don't want to say it's not worth the effort, but I want to say uh, maybe put more time and effort into less if uh, to make sure that everything is done right. Well, so look, you did. So I'm going to jump in right here. So, I we've been playing food plots a long time, and I've cut a lot of corners through the years, and it shows when you cut corners. And this one time, I I said I'm not going to do it. So I spent a lot of time with my Onyx app and walked out to know the exact dimensions of this plot, and then fertilized accordingly. had had limed ahead of time, months ahead of time, and then just told myself. You don't plant more than what it's calling for. You, yeah. I mean, I went exactly, measured it out, and it it was just all the difference in the world. So you yeah. finally did what you've been telling everybody <laughs> yeah. else to do over yeah. the years. Well, well, like yeah, my, my fields have slacked a little. Uh, my place is really hard to get lime to, and my fields have slacked a little bit on the pH. And I noticed that this year for the first time. Normally it stays green on through the season, but this year we, you know, planted them on time, put the right amount of fertilizer out, came back, reapplied 100 pounds of nitrogen per acre, uh, probably in early November. Uh, we planted in the first September. Looked great. But then uh, a few weeks ago it started looking depleted. Mm-hmm. And I, I ran a soil test and my pH was a lot lower than it needed to be. So, Were you in the low fives? By the- I was in the low fives, yep. Yeah. You start getting below around five, six, five, seven. That's mm-hmm. when it seems to fall off pretty quick. So that brings up an important point, which I think Austin talks about all the time. You know, you can't just test your soil once. You need to test it on an annual basis because these are powerhouse plants. I mean, they're pulling some stuff out yeah. of the soil, and you got to be ready to amend it uh, in order for them to be there for your deer. Yes, and uh, look, I think that's the secret mm-hmm. to long-term success with these things is because they are so good at sucking the nutrients yeah, out of the soil. Houses. And the Bible even got, talks about it, doesn't it? You've Power got a, mustard seed. It does, yeah. <laughs> and it, the, yeah, it does. So you've got I, to put them back. You've got one, to put one thing. Back. One thing I think that's worth mentioning too about the brassicas, and this doesn't even have to be the you know our our blends that we use the hundred percent brassicas in like. Uh, maximum or winter bulbs or final fours, but even like full draw where it is a pretty good sized component of the blend. You know, we, we've seen a lot over the years where customers have really good success growing them the first couple of years, even in plots where they just pushed off a bunch of trees and got the ground cleared and, um, you know, got them planted. I think a lot of that is because, you know, not to get too technical, but Dudley was taking Dudley was hitting on it a little bit a while ago about the organic matter percentage. When your organic matter is high, I think your soil has a lot better ability to um, not be as affected. Plants not be as affected by low pH when your organic matter is high. It's more forgiving. But, 
as it goes down and you keep on working the soil and uh, keep planting the same crop. And if you're not putting back those really important micronutrients, you know, everybody keeps throwing out the same amount of NP and K every year, but the micronutrients can be the link in the chain that's missing, whether it's molybdenum or boron. Those are some of the really important micronutrients to brassicas. And if you're, if you plant this crop for two or three years and it sucks up a good portion of what's available in the soil of those micronutrients and they don't get added back, you're real quickly going to start seeing some deficiencies in those crops, um, especially if your pH is, is low and the organic matter percentage is starting to fall off and, and all that starts to culminate into a couple of nice growing years and then it immediately starts to tank. So that's something to keep in mind for people that have had really good success without putting in a lot of work. And then all of a sudden they see, you know, degradation of the plant a lot quicker in the year, like Dudley was just talking about, and and potentially a lot less utilization from your deer because they're not going to taste as well to them. Too much borophil. So look, while we're right <laughs> <laughs> while we're right here, Bronson, we had we took uh we did an analysis of uh couple of different plants and uh is this from the ponderosa uh yeah it is <laughs> richie okay all right so um it, it's just really scientific i mean i don't know what i'm looking at i know about you know i know to look at crude protein i know to look Forage at tdm so so yeah bronson would you walk us through this dudley austin y'all have all got copies Lanny, you got a copy somewhere i would recommend a guy that wants to know about his plants to to get one so you wouldn't pick this these this forage out of your field and then sent that in to get a a forage analysis done on it. Isn't that what we did, Austin? Yes, I selected. So when we went to Bobby's plot in particular, since he had soil tested and kind of done it to a T, we used that as our example of, you know, well fertilized in a well managed field. And then I took one of mine up here that I have purposely not done anything to and was just, so it was kind of a, a control. And I went and I selected the same species so in bobby's plot we used radishes and our green globe turnip and so what what we've got right here is the results from bobby's plot and what was immediately stuck out was the levels on bobby's plots almost across the board even though we're testing the same species everything was higher and a lot of times i i think uh I think Bronson can get a lot more into this, but your your nitrogen levels a lot of times are going to be very representative of, of protein sometimes. They, they're very correlated. And so everything in my plot was, was lower. The total digestible nutrients was lower. The crude protein was lower just about across the board because nothing has been done to that soil. It has not been amended. The pH is low. The, the plant is not uptaken, even though some of those nutrients are already in the soil the plant is not taking them up like it could. And so what, what we've got from Bobby's plot is a plant that is taking up not only what's already there, but what we've added to the soil. And it's pretty evident in the, in the results here from the soil and the tissue analysis of what that plant contains. And I took samples from basically three stages of growth so that you would have a wider picture of what's going on so new growth fresh out of the plant growth that had already been browsed and then old 
old or original leaf growth. So what were the original leaves that came out of the plant as it germinated? So it's a pretty, you know, good sample to look at. So Bronson, does anything jump out at you as a researcher? Uh, the, the one thing that jumps out at me is that everything looks good. Um, starting with, you know, the, the thing we typically always uh, concentrate on is crude protein. And so on both these, you're looking at a low of, I'm rounding here, 25. And the other one is, is 28. So that is, that is really, really good. You know, we say that uh, deer only need uh, 16%, at the most 18%, to, to live and function, you know. Um, but we typically, one reason that we like to have our food plot forages be in the 20s and sometimes up to 30 is because a lot of the naturally occurring forages are going to be 14% and 12%. And what we were talking about earlier is they're going to mix those things. So a deer and a ruminant doesn't just need protein. There's 50, 100 or greater, you know, of, of minerals and chemicals and enzymes and so forth that are interacting, that they're mixing together. But back to your point, Bobby, you know, when, when you look at the, the mineral composition, everything with, with this is, is at or above what uh, a deer needs. So, yeah, the, the fiber as well, the reason we look at fiber is it's um, – the higher the fiber content, the more difficult it's going to be to get digestible nutrients from, from that forage. And so uh, there's acid detergent fiber, neutral detergent fiber. All that looks great. And again, the minerals look good as well. And there's really, I mean, I appreciate what you did here with the, uh, the prepared soil, the amended soil. But the good news, I would say, is that there is definitely a difference, but it's not overwhelming. Mm. So it's one of those, here's evidence here why doing that pays off, but at the same time, getting a crop out there is still, is still helping. Most important. Yeah. Could you speak to the, to the difference in uh, amount of forage produced between the two plots, Austin? I mean, I know you went and looked at the Ponderosa. Uh, at, at Bobby's place for sure. Uh, and I know you spend a lot of times in your food plots, but, you know, I heard Bronson was just saying there's definitely a difference in a, a food plot that's been it got the proper pH and the proper uh, nutrition. Or is that too big? Yeah, I, it, you know, it would take a pretty scientific, you know, venture to really gather that because you would need to gather – you know, the, you would have to measure off plots and gather biomass and everything else. to get, you know, tonnage per acre and all that. But, but I will say, like Bronson said, the, the important part is getting this stuff planted and, and having the food available. Uh, but I will say kind of like what Dudley was talking about, I do see a difference, even though I am a little, in a little bit colder climate here, uh, of the keeping of the plant yeah. relative to its relative to its fertility. So, you know, we, we do have a lot, colder weather earlier in the year here than even a couple hours south but my plants are are, are eating a lot further to the ground because i've got a extremely high deer density to deal with but the color there's so many things when you've been looking at these same varieties as, as for as many years as i have I, I can spot when one of them's not healthy pretty quickly and it's pretty evident that you do see some difference in the keeping ability through the growing season and when the growing season stops and the plants start getting into 
you know, starting to struggle a little bit because of cold weather and, and that sort of thing, that the more well fertilized and, and amended the soil seems to be, the plants do seem to be get stressed out from little things a lot less. So um, the, for the, the amount that they put out would, I'd love to look into that, but that would require something beyond what I'm capable of doing here with my the tools at hand. But like Bronson was saying, I, I studied this whole sample analysis with a, a ruminant um, professional. He looks at these all day, every day, and he was pretty blown away by how, like Bronson said, across the board, everything is 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 at or above what a deer would need. And, but one of the things that stuck out to him and, and it's beyond my education, but it makes sense. If you look down at the very bottom with all these numbers, that relative feed value, he said, is one thing that they look at a lot because it's, it's basically a, a grade of the overall quality of this forage for a ruminant. And you'll see that he, their scale is 95 to 200. And and the you know the turnip was at 307, and the radish was 260 um, on the relative feed value, and it's it's just way over what they would normally see in a typical forage. So that just tells me that what we already know that it's just really really good groceries for a deer to put in their bellies. Austin, would you tell people how they could? go about having one of these tests done themselves. So if, if, if they want to like do a this. leaf tissue analysis. Yeah. yeah. So it's the same, uh, same people that do our soil test waypoint analytical, and you can call them, email them and just request a, um, tissue sample a bag, or you can do it yourself. If you basically take the large freezer size, Ziploc, heavy duty Ziploc bags, and if you can envision a quart-sized bag packed completely full, that's about the size of the sample they need of each type of forage that you would like to sample. And so if it was clover, you would want to get, you know, as much as you could stuff into a quart bag, basically. And, you know, there's there's some different ways you can go about it. If you want to look at the everything, the stems, or if you want to just measure the actual leaf forage itself, uh, you can do that. I included everything so that we've got a little bit true picture because when you see a deer eating these, you don't see them just eating the leaf. I mean, they're stripping the stem and eating eating the whole thing. So I kind of wanted a picture of, of what the whole thing is from a, a analysis standpoint. But it that's the amount that they need to, to send off and – uh, it's just like a soil sample. They shoot your results back, and you've got this long list of a ton of things that are uh, way over my head. Um, but you can talk with somebody that can really walk you through what your sample is showing you and, and what it says about what you've got planted and where it stands at on a nutrition scale for the animal you're trying to feed. And with us, that's deer. Yeah. Yeah, and it's waypointanalytical.com, guys. So if you want to do that yourself, I, I recommend it. Yeah, that way you know. And, uh, and, and Bronson, yeah, you guys do it all the time. We do. Yeah, you can send that same sample through the Mississippi State Extension Service, working through your county office. Same when they're doing soil tests, they can do forage analysis for you as well. So. Oh, Carrie Jones at the Soil Lab. There you go. That's yeah. exactly right. Yeah. yeah. Does the fiber have to do with uh, uh, digestible, digestible nutrients? 
it affects it. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, cows can process lignin and, and harder to break down materials uh, more easily than a deer can. Mm. Yeah. Gotcha. Uh, it, and horses as well, completely different mechanism and how they do it. They're a monogastric, not a ruminant, mm. but I mean, they Bermuda grass. You know, but deer aren't going to eat that. Fescue, yeah. deer aren't going to eat that. So, but, but now a physiology. Horse, a horse can founder, can't they? If they eat something that's too rich, yeah, that they can, and so can ruminants as well. Yeah, is a deer a ruminant? Yes. <laughs> so a deer could founder. 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 Yeah. Rumen acidosis mm-hmm. is kind of what it's called. Yeah, and it's just. Have you ever ran into a deer that's foundered? I have. I really? Had a, I had a research deer when I was at Texas A&M Kingsville that, that did that. And was it, it in a pen? It, it, it was. Mm-hmm. And it was probably something already going on with the deer, but it had eaten too much of a, we call it too much of a hot food, but it was too ener- energy rich. And it, its feedback system wasn't working for whatever reason and ate too much. And uh, we had to call in a veterinarian. And its hooves, not to be mistaken with sloughed hooves from mm-hmm. EHD, its hooves were intact but grown out about this far. So I, I guess you can't like see my hands, you. but yeah, like uh, four to five inches wow. and curving up. Big old so, toenail. Right. right. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that's interesting. So, Bronson, from a researcher perspective, that's that's studying all these things. What what questions are we not talk? What are we not talking about here that we need to? Is there anything else that needs to be covered? Um, I think we've about covered a few a few little management things that have come up when Dudley was talking about his place, and I think it's important because everybody deals with access and the ag line. And getting it in, and then when you're planning to do it, you don't have, you can't get it that weekend, or it's too wet to get in your field. Is uh, always think about pelleted lime, you know. And, and again, it's a little more expensive relative to the product. Ag lime is cheaper, but you got to have the truck to spread it, and it lasts longer. Slower acting, but lasts longer. The pelletized lime is more instantaneous, more expensive, but it's not going to last as long. Um, if you're on that regime, you definitely need to do a soil test every year to, to get what where your pH is at. And, and then also some of these, uh, the liquid application is now. So, uh, again, they're, you know, relative to the, the neutralizing value you're going to get per acre, they're going to be the most expensive. But if you have a four-wheeler and a sprayer, that is one way you can address pH problems. Yeah, I've I've priced pelletized before, and it's it's out of my budget, unfortunately, mm-hmm. for the acreage that I have. Um, I, I'd like to do, you know, certain parts of some food plots and pelletize, but you know, it seems like ten years ago everybody referred to some of these liquid liming agents or whatever as as snake oil, and I, I feel like nowadays. Uh, some of that technology actually works, mm-hmm. um, and, and they're getting better and better at it, and there's, there's different formulations of it. Um, I'm still trying to learn as much as I can and, and test some things, but uh, they're on to something for sure. Right. Uh, I, I agree. And working with our soil scientists, we had looked at some of that as well, and that's not to say there's not some snake oil products out there, but to generally say anything liquidized to improve pH is all snake oil is false. Right. You, you can do that right. Uh, another little thing that fr- from research, but I think speaks to the, the 
power of the nutrients in the plant and the deer being able to discern it is that uh, shout out to former graduate student Jacob Dykes and Marcus Splashley. We were all cooperating, Steve Damaris, all on this project. But um, we had uh, species of forage. I think we were using deer vetch at the time, but uh, and adding different types of fertilizer components to it. And what we found was that when we added phosphorus, because phosphorus was limited, you're not going to see this effect if the nutrient or mineral is not limited. Phosphorus was limited. When we added phosphorus to that forage, not only do you get a difference in a biomass response, but right beside each other in cafeteria style, the deer could detect that it was phosphorus enriched and selected for that over the same species of plant that had not had phosphorus limited. Mm. So they can pick up those differences and, and they're going to, they're going to go to it and use it. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. So, so uh, I don't think this has come up. Uh, what, I guess we, I mean, I, I try to do about 30% of my food plots and brassicas um, every year. Uh, the other third is usually clovers that I, uh, perennial clovers with, with uh, maybe some annual clovers mixed in. And the rest of my places, I, I like to do either in a cereal grain or like a blend, mm-hmm. like a wheat, oats, clover, brassica blend. I don't what, Bobby? No, I, th- I think that makes a lot of sense. And when we certainly see those blends, like you just described, as being what most people are comfortable planting. Yeah, yeah. That's and, what's and, you know, and it may be for the economical sake as well, but they perform well. Those are all components that. Dear love. Mm-hmm. One thing with, with that, Bobby, for, for people that are mixing themselves, is that that's the feedback I get a lot, too, is if, if you go overboard on the brassica, not only, as you mentioned, you could diminish the production of the brassica, but then also you're going to outcompete those other forages in your mix as well. And so, again, thinking about getting you to spring green up and at spring green up, clover is going to be very important. So you want to make sure you have a healthy healthy crop of clover as well. Yeah, we, boy, we love clover. That's a whole other show. We've kind of touched on that before. But it's a, I think the older we get or the more we plant or doing this, the more value we see in clover. And don't get toxic started on it. Yeah, It'll yeah, be here yeah for la- last week he hit on it hard. But i tell you what, you know, we're changing subject here, but it was an, an incredible year for clover, or an incredible fall yeah, for, for clover. clover, and I think in just about any part of the country because uh, it stayed warm for so long. Well, I think our big takeaway today is, I mean, we all have, we've, we've told stories, Austin, it, it, we finally got him on here, but we've all told stories about brassica. And I think we all think brassicas have a part in a gamekeeper's management plan and it planted in a diverse fashion. Uh, I think uh, Bronson's over here nodding his head, so I think that means he agrees with us that we're not saying only plant brassica. No. We're saying we're not saying plant only plant one thing. That, that's right. We're about diversity, that's and, right. and that's one thing, Bronson. Uh, you're over here preaching as well, so mm-hmm. we're on the same page there. Absolutely. But, but if I can just point out one little thing that I have learned the hard way. And I used to think if 10 pounds is good, 20 pounds is going to be better. And that is not the case. No, not with these So plants. you need to measure that plot. And there's a lot of ways to do that. On X is one. A range finder, Leopold range finder. But know how big your plot is and then figure out what you need. 
Yeah, you can get away with overdoing cereal grains or, or clovers, in my in my opinion. Uh, if the seed population is too high, uh, and sometimes you're just creating more forage, but plants that get as big as brassicas, they need to have their space. You know, like a, a plant every six to eight to ten inches, twelve yeah. inches. Yeah. What well, one thing we we've tinkered with, and we've only done this for two years, and, and we didn't do, devote a lot of acreage to it at first, so I'm, I want to do it for a couple more years. But I've always also tried to think about um, plantings for people that only care about, of course, this wouldn't be a gamekeeper type person, but it's just hunting. I think I, I know where you're coming I just want to see deer in November, December, October. So we started tink- tinkering with cereal grain planting rate. And so we did the normal rate, double the rate, and triple the rate. And during deer season, the double and triple the rate, of, of course, it outperformed and you had more biomass. But when you roll around into late winter and early spring, where competition is starting to take place, the regular old prescribed rate performs just as well come March. Hmm. That's interesting. So, okay. I think I thought you were going to say that you, know, you can plant if you're planting brassicas a little bit late, you can afford to plant them closer together because they're not going to get as they're big. They're not going to get as big. But, that makes uh, sense. That makes a lot of sense with the cereal grains too. Well, I like the idea of guys paying attention to and and, and going by what's recommended in that soil test, mm-hmm. and then and I think it's it, this all starts with that soil test, 100%. and those aren't very expensive to do. Uh, Mississippi, Mississippi State officer, eight bucks, yeah, that's eight dollars, well spent mm-hmm. for sure. So, look, I I tell you what, I'm a big fan of the brassicas. I've got a field right now that's nourishing a deer herd, and I'm excited. I enjoy watching the pictures that I get, and. I, <laughs> Okay, Richie, you can just calm down over there. He's on that fine road. He is. But I'm just so proud that my plot didn't lip high. Now, there are parts of it around the edge that's lip high, but out in the center of it, and they're slowly. But I, So I know I know that they've got something to You eat. even picked a five-gallon bucket for me? Yeah, you? we yeah. ate. Yeah, what's we, it? They were delicious. What, deer meat for? Uh, deer meat for dinner. We cooked up some biologic How was brassica. it? It was excellent. Had a little gamekeeper butchery tasso in there and a bunch of biologic brassicas. Did you put some uh, some ham in it? Gamekeeper butchery tasso. Is that what tasso yeah. is? Okay, I, I, don't, I don't know what tasso is. Get with the game, Bobby. Yeah, Bronson. <laughs> you see, you see what this of, is. Of, of course, I knew what tasso was. Bobby. <laughs> I didn't know the last week. <laughs> well, look. Is there uh, here's opportunity? Is there anything left to to, to discuss, Bronson? That's something that you think we need to point out? Uh, uh yeah. Uh, Think you covered it already. We always emphasize diversity, and a brassica uh, is another tool in that toolbox. The same way you heard me say a cereal grain is important and a clover is important, mm-hmm. uh, so is a brassica. So I just think let the deer choose what they want to eat. Give them an option. Give it a couple years for them to be exposed to that forage, and more often than not, they're going to get accustomed to it and and consume it. Yeah, that sounds good. What about you, Lanny? Uh, you know, uh, Nebraska is a workhorse. There is no silver bullet in in anything. So, uh, to to Bronson's point, you know, uh, you got to do do it all. But the brassicas are a great thing to have in your arsenal uh, when you're trying to grow quality deer forage in a lot of it. So, and they taste good too. Yeah, they do. Dudley, 
Um, I, I learned before the show, but by watching my fields this year, that uh, you can't cut any corners. And and by seeing your crop and how how successful it was, that when I plant brassicas, I'm not going to cut corners. Yeah, I think that's a good you, point. It seems like you can afford to cut corners a little. You know, some some plants are more forgiving. I think your cereal grains and clovers are a little bit more forgiving. But brassicas, you you got to give them what they need if you want them to last. Yeah, it's a good point. You know what? What one thing that we had pointed out when you talk about these plants, they start out as such a small, tiny seed. You know, about mm-hmm. the size of number eight shot or mm-hmm. so, but they turn into this great big chunk of forage. And that requires nutrients that your soil needs to have. Hence, again, the soil test and making sure you have things right. A lot is going on in two or three months after germination and survival and then the growth that takes place. you 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 got to have the soil in the right condition. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, Austin, you got anything else we need to cover? I'll throw in one last thing. I mean, anybody that knows me knows I'm a massive fan of brassicas. I mean, I've got them growing in pots in my house at the time. <laughs> uh, but, you know, we, we've sort of touched on it, but you just cannot overemphasize how important that soil test is, not just to find out what your soil may need, but maybe what it doesn't need. Because what I tell people all the time when they send me their soil test and say, explain this to me, is sometimes your soil has already got a lot of something and you still add more of it. And so for the guy that is buying 300 pounds of triple 13 every year and throwing it out, but maybe seeing diminishing results, maybe your soil was already really high in phosphorus or some other nutrient and you're continuing to add it to it and possibly creating a, a toxic level of it, uh, which is not any better than it being deficient in some mineral. So we're not just trying to find out what your soil is missing, but maybe what it already has too much of. So just another reason to spend that $9 and figure out what you're, what you got and where, where you're starting at. Yeah, that's a great point. Boy, the way fertilizer prices are, Look in these days, yeah, it makes it even more important. Well, Dudley, you experienced that at your farm, didn't you? Yeah, I mean, well, the fertilizer is a lot more expensive this year. No, I mean, in the past, historically, people had fertilized. Oh, correct. Uh, my phosphorus levels are are so high that you know my soil tests tell me that I don't even need to add it. About that, yeah, I, I've been down that road too. Uh, a place Just I managed from, one time from people putting out triple thirteen or triple whatever every year, for decades. Yeah. And they, yeah. Uh, phosphate and, just doesn't move through the soil uh, like some of the others do, and, and and it's not that difficult. I mean, you might need someone to walk you through it one time, but it's not difficult to buy the components of N, P, and K, weigh it out, and mix it yourself. You're still going to broadcast at one time the same way. You just a little of this bag with a scale, a little of that bag, and then you have a plot-specific fertilizer application. That's right. It's just the way to go. And you will all, most always, it depends. <laughs> you almost said it, didn't you? <laughs> save money. <laughs> yeah. Typically, you save money. Yeah, you, wait, yeah. you buy bags of 0 you buy bags of 0 and then you can buy separate nitrogen. Yep. And uh, if you soil test every field, you can you can put out a custom Blend a fertilizer on every single opening you have if you need to. There we go. I did that with with a hunting club this past year, and uh, I got some wailing and gnashing of teeth. You know, oh, this is going to be, and then uh, two months later, 
food plots look as best as they, they you ever the hero. have. That's right. Yeah, Ed Bronson. Bronson. Ed Bronson. No one's really talking about. <laughs> so it's a perfect time. Bronson, Dr. Bronson Strickland, he's from Mississippi State University. Got, if anybody listened to our podcast, you're no stranger. But we just want to just sing your praises. And Mississippi State, we appreciate y'all coming over here and answering questions and putting up with us. And, any time and every time, just let me know. Happy oh, to. and uh, we're going to send you home with some trees from Native Nurseries. Boom! Ooh, uh, you I can like plant that. them on your personal place or out at the out at your uh, our demo forest. Demo, demo forest. forest. We got a demo forest. I yeah. like that. Yeah. So, well, once we once we get off this, we'll talk about you know the mix you you guys need. Okay, sounds great. Thank you. Yeah. Well, we're we're pleased to have you. I've got you a levy sling. Nice. So, uh, you, you, this next year, you can, you can uh, gunsling. Whose turkey shells are those? Are those mine? Those are mine. Those are, oh, mine. Those are my apex turkey <laughs> shells. <laughs> oh, man. All right. You but know we've been. You're shooting a 20. What's up? Well, I did. Are you shooting a 20 now? I know. Hayden is. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well, Hayden needs some shells. Yes, he does. <laughs> Well, look, guys, we've been going a long time. This is, this is fascinating. Thank you for coming. Dudley, Lanny, uh, it's, Bobby, just, it's been really good. Uh, Richie, uh, it up. you're getting a little bit carried away on the board over there. So. <laughs> All right, so why don't you say goodbye, Dudley? Goodbye, Dudley. Get us out of here, Richie. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Gamekeeper Podcast, and be sure to tune in again. Subscribe to Gamekeeper Farming for Wildlife magazine and don't miss the Mossy Oak Properties Fistful of Dirt podcast with my good buddy, Ronnie Cuz Strickland.